0: This evening's event takes up one of the most hotly contested, and I would say much discussed, issue of the upcoming election in the United States of America. The election of Donald Trump four years ago, to what many of us consider to be the most powerful presidency in the world, sent shockwaves through the global community. While many rejoiced in the way he challenged the global order from NATO to China, Others feared that he lacked the temperament and judgment to lead the U.S. on the world stage. Since his election, U.S. President Trump has been embroiled in constant controversy from tax cuts to environmental legislation to immigration measures that are being challenged in the courts. Internationally, he has withdrawn the U.S. from international agreements and withdrawn U.S. armed forces from Syria. Most recently, he has clashed with public health experts while the COVID-19 pandemic ravages the country, and has met the Black Lives Matter protests with a combative law and order message. The upcoming presidential election pits Trump against former Vice President Joe Biden, presenting voters with starkly contrasting values, policies, and visions for the United States. The decision of American voters on November the 3rd will reverberate in Australia and around the world. Today's experts will lay out the issues and possibilities and what the great powers of the past might tell us about the future.
1: Welcome to the podcast edition of the University of Queensland's Global Leadership Series event, originally held on Thursday, the 10th of September 2020. The voice you just heard was that of the Executive Dean of UQ's Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, Professor Heather Zwicker, as she introduced the topic of this podcast, the upcoming US election. Throughout this podcast, you will hear from Associate Professor Sarah Percy, Professor Alastair Blanchard, Professor Catherine Gelbar, and Bruce Hawker before we cross to a Q&A format. The first panellist is Associate Professor of International Relations at UQ's School of Politics and International Studies, Sarah Percy. Sarah's research focuses on unconventional combatants, and she has recently hosted an ABC radio national series on the Cold War. Just a note that Sarah refers to a few presentation slides throughout her speech, as this content was originally recorded as a webinar. If you would like to view these slides, they will be linked in the show notes. Here's Associate Professor Sarah Percy.
2: Okay, so thank you, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us tonight. I'm going to be speaking to you about the US political system and its influence on this election, but I only have seven minutes. So I'm going to try and cover the many ways in which American politics does have an influence, but I'm going to really focus in on two of them. And I feel like I should come with a warning because in 2016, the School of Politics had an event about the election in which we confidently discussed on the 25th of October how Clinton was going to win the election. And these were the polling numbers on that date, as you can see. And of course, she wins the popular vote, but loses the election. So she actually wins by 3 million votes to give you a sense of the state of play today it's actually yesterday that was the best polling data i could get we have we see biden with a more commanding lead but there are a couple of interesting things about those numbers one of which is that he's not that much lower than he was in the previous in the previous election so to cover myself off and say that i wasn't entirely hopeless at predicting the election i think a major reason why hillary clinton lost the election in 2016 has to do with some of these quirks of the American political system, which I'm about to tell you about. So I'm gonna focus on two. I'm gonna spend most of my time talking about the Electoral College and how it influences the American political system. And if I get time, I'll also discuss a little bit about what it looks like when you run a major and large democracy without any type of independent electoral commission that sets the basic rules of engagement for your elections. So what is the Electoral College? Well, it was set up in the Constitution. There are 538 electors. You need 270 to win. And what happens is all of the electors cast their votes for the person who won the election in that state. And this causes a whole series of quirks, and there are a few to note. One is that how we determine the number of electors in each state is the number of senators, so every state has two, plus the number of people they elect to Congress. Now, that latter number, that's based on good old fashion representation by population. But of course, whether or not you're Nebraska, Alaska, or California, you all have the same number of senators, which means that this isn't strictly a representation by population system. 48 of the states have what's called a winner-take-all electoral college electoral system. And that means that If you win the election in California by one vote, you get all 55 of California's electoral college votes go into your pocket, and that helps you win the election. One of the other quirks it means is that, generally speaking, roughly, rural areas with lower populations are disproportionately represented in this system because it relies on the number of senators as well as the number of people elected to Congress. So to give you an idea of how this worked in the 2016 election, we're going to take a quick look at Michigan. So Michigan's really interesting. As you can see, the vote here is extremely close. So actually, Clinton only loses Michigan by 10,704 votes, but all 17 of the Electoral College votes available in Michigan, they go straight to President Trump. And Michigan is one of the reasons why Trump wins that election. So we get some very strange things. To win an election, you not only have to win the popular vote, but crucially, you have to win it in the right states. And if you win it in the wrong states, it doesn't matter how big your popular margin is. What matters is the fact you've won it in the wrong states. It also creates a series of perverse effects, which means the Electoral College has the impact that there's no point in even campaigning in a lot of states. I'm going to show you a series of slides that demonstrate this. So you can see here the ad spend by candidates in the 2012 election. You can see here what we The spending is very critical in certain states, which are identified as key battleground states. But this gets even more noticeable when we consider the question of campaign attention. So this is from the 2004 election. And the slide with the purple squiggles, those are visits by candidate. And the slide with the dollar signs, that's campaign finance spending. So you can see, if you live in some parts of the U.S., you will actually probably not see any presidential campaign ads. And you certainly will not see a presidential candidate. Because there's absolutely no point in campaigning in those areas because the electoral college votes are either too small or they, um, or according to how the strategists have calculated it, it's just not worth visiting that area. And you see pretty consistent patterns in this. So even though this is 2004, a lot of the same states are at stake because the fact of the fact that they're politically quite divided and they have a lot of electoral college votes. We can also say that there is a rough similarity and it was certainly true in the 2016 election that Trump voters are concentrated in a couple of very high electoral college vote states. And interestingly, some of these in the 2016 election were historically Democrat states and the big demographic shift was white voters without a college education tend to be very strong voting pool for Trump and they tend to live in places like Michigan and Ohio, both of which have a lot of electoral college votes. Now, this tweet attracted a lot of attention in the past couple of days. And so so to fill you in, the
1: tweet that Sarah's referring to is from Nate Silver. It reads chance of a Biden electoral college win if he wins the popular vote by X amount and then goes on to list the different percentage chances
2: in the past couple of days. And why it's so interesting is it really brings this up in stark relief. So for Biden to win the election, he actually has to win by a whole lot. So if he wins by 3 million votes, that's one to two points, he only has a 22% chance of victory. So to get a 99% chance of victory, dead certainty, that's six to seven points, which is a very, very large, like that is an absolutely massive landslide electoral victory. What we've seen coming up in this election is we have some quirky features where we have some battleground states which haven't really been battleground states before, and I've drawn these two pictures from Nate Silver's 538 blog and from The Economist election predictor. And what you can see here is that we have a lot of states that are surprisingly in play. And the states with the closest races are these ones. And they have a lot of electoral college votes at stake. So Florida has 27, Pennsylvania has 21, Ohio has 20. So these are all, these are all areas which are very much up for grabs. And what we will imagine is that these campaigns are focusing all of their resources on these battleground states, particularly the high value states. One of the things that's extremely interesting about this map is both Texas and Florida are up for grabs. And this is very interesting for all kinds of reasons, one of which is Texas should be Trump-Heartland. It's not playing out entirely that way, and Florida, Biden doesn't seem to be playing well among Florida voters, so the Biden campaign is currently quite concerned about that one. But the real takeaway message with this is that if Trump were to win all of those states with the closest races we see over here, he he would probably win the election according to current predictions, even if he won all of those states by one vote. So it doesn't matter what the overall vote is. All he has to do is win those states by one vote. Now, how likely that is is an interesting question and it will depend enormously on how big that margin of victory would be for Biden if indeed there is a margin for victory for Biden at all. Although most people think that he'll win the popular vote, it's the question of what happens in the electoral college. Now I'll just finish up by saying one of the things which has radically affected American politics over the years is the fact that American states draw their own electoral rules. And this has led to some absolutely strange Practices, one of which is quite extreme gerrymandering. So, what we have here is two pictures of electoral districts. This is Baton Rouge on this side, and this is Baltimore on this side. So, this is actually one electorate, this blue squiggle thing <laughs> that looks like a snake. And it was drawn, This, in this case, that was drawn by a successive Democratic leaders to ensure a high Democrat vote turnout. And this one is the opposite. So, you see this on both sides of politics. There's a big move to create electoral districts which will continue to support a certain type of candidate. But it also makes, people, makes it really hard for people to vote because if you live in one end of this snake, you might find it quite hard to get to a polling place, for example. We've also seen other actions of active voter suppression, which have occurred in the US. Oh, I just want to contrast that, shows you Brisbane's electoral districts, which you know, are a little squiggly around the margins, but don't really bear any resemblance to those ones we've just seen. So in 2013, there was a Supreme Court decision. Previously, states that had had a history of voter suppression had to have oversight whenever they made any of these changes that might impact people's ability to vote. In 2013, that was struck down by the Supreme Court. And states with a history of voter suppression could now avoid oversight. So to give you an example of how this played out in real life, in Texas, Since 2012, they've closed 750 polling places. And The Guardian reports that these are in disproportionately minority areas. And this is in a state which barely had 50% voter turnout in the 2012 election. So they're making it harder and harder for people to vote. In Alabama, you have to have a driver's license to vote in most places. But simultaneously, the state of Alabama has closed Department of Motor Vehicles where you get your driver's licenses in minority neighborhoods. And that has had obviously the effect of making it harder for people to vote. So not only do you have to win the electoral college in all the right areas, you have to do it in a context where your expectation is voter turnout will be in the low 50%. And that some voters that might naturally vote Democrat are particularly likely to be suppressed in their ability to vote. So getting out the vote is a really significant feature of American political campaigning while they do things like try and get people on a bus bring them to the polling place and vote in a way that it hasn't historically been in our political campaigns here, because when the expectation is that everybody votes, it turns out that it's quite hard to suppress people's ability to vote. And this is one of the other main factors, which is going to probably have an impact on the 3rd of November. What will happen on the 3rd of November? Given my experience in the 2016 election, I'm unlikely to make the call tonight. But I do think it's going to come down to the Electoral College. It's going to come down to the margin of victory that Biden achieves. The concern for me as an observer is that Trump's floor doesn't seem to fall below, much below 42%. And it doesn't seem to matter what he does. Um, it doesn't seem to have an impact on quite a hardcore number of voters. So the critical thing for a Biden victory will be to get a, the vote and to try and get as large a popular vote victory as possible.
1: Our next panellist is the Paul Eliardis Chair of Classics and Ancient History and the Director of the Program in Western Civilisation at UQ, Professor Alastair Blanchard. Alastair has been a visiting fellow at several international universities, including holding positions at Merton College, Oxford, the University of Reading and the University of Sydney.
3: Where I want to pick up is the problem of how do we predict what's going to happen? And in particular, you know, is always hard whenever you come to terms with Trump is just his inner, his ability to confound the pundits, the ability to confound experts. Um, and This is the second time that uh, UQ has devoted one of its seminars to the topic of the Trump presidency. In April 2017, a group of us uh, all met together to talk about the first hundred days of the Trump presidency, and we discussed you know what we thought were going to be the key issues and challenges of the presidency, and how we thought the Trump presidency would all play out well, well how wrong we turned out to be. We all knew the Trump presidency was going to be a, a, a ride, but i don 't think any of us were quite prepared for what a wild ride uh, it was going to be. If we had to kind of score ourselves on our predictions, I think we'd be lucky to get a bare pass. you know true, we could see that Trump was going to have an inward domestic focus uh, to his agenda. But I think the retreat from international sphere, the Paris Climate Accords, the sidelining of NATO, the withdrawal from WHO, I mean, all of this was far more than we predicted. We were asked to pick international hotspots. We thought North Korea was going to be the key flashpoint. And comparatively, it's turned out to be actually a remarkably stable relationship, no more rocky than we saw under Obama or Clinton. We thought there were going to be tensions with China, but not nearly as intense uh, a situation as the one that's emerged. We're talking about trade wars in 2017, not um, actual wars. I predicted that there was going to be a new imperial family. Uh, and uh, here you see the family of Augustus and the family of Trump. Uh, and in particular, I was very interested in the way that certain roles were earmarked uh, for uh, Ivanka and Jared Krishna. What's interesting is this seems to have kind of fallen by the wayside, particularly with the, the failure of Jared Kushner's plans uh, in relation to the Middle East. You know, in domestic politics, we thought that the Republican Party would exert a much greater role over the presidency. Well, how wrong we were there. You know, now I'm an ancient historian, and 2017 feels like ancient history to me. In one, in. 2017. One of the things I talked about was the way in which American politics always likes to see itself in terms of ancient Rome, a, a trend that goes all the way back to George Washington, for example, who repeatedly cast himself as as a sort of Roman statesman. Now, now in 2017, the Roman figure that everyone was comparing Trump to was Julius Caesar. So the Huffington Post ran a, a story entitled "Rome Had Caesar." America has Trump. Caesar was everywhere. You know, Jonathan Jones and The Guardian described Trump as the new Caesar, as did the new statesman. The Economist led with a piece, you know, dude, where's my toga? On the similarities between Donald Trump's Washington and the Roman Republic. All over social media, Trump was being compared to Julius Caesar, the, the new man who bounded onto the scene, disrupted the established order. And established his own one-person rule. Well, well, once again, how wrong we were! You know, we thought we were getting Caesar. What we actually got was Nero. Now, I say this partly as a, as a big fan of Nero. That is to say that arguably not since Nero, or perhaps Louis XIV, have we seen a leader who understands the theatricality of power like Trump, right? I mean, we used to talk about, you know, Ronald Reagan bringing Hollywood to the White House. Well, well, Trump makes Reagan look like an amateur. And what this means, and this is really important, is that nobody can energize his base like Trump, right? He speaks to them in a language that they understand. He affirms his base in a way that no other institution does, and certainly affirms them, In a way that no person of power has probably done in their lifetimes. So he understands the theatre of power. Now, Trump's theatricality, of course, has not gone down well with his opponents. Like Nero, the the accusation has been made that Trump is all theatre, that Trump fiddles while Rome burns. And this image of Trump fiddling while Rome burns is everywhere, and particularly most recently. In relation to the COVID uh, outbreak. But of course, what people miss uh, about uh, this image of Trump as Nero is that the way that critics read this image and the way that his supporters read this image are totally different, right? So the the cartoonist, of course, wants to see us as this is an image of poor, indifferent uh, government. But of course, if you're a sort of rusted-on Trump supporter, the idea of Washington kind of burning to the ground um, is actually rather appealing. You're, you're wanting to add fuel to the to the flames. And, and if you think this is an exaggeration, I'd like to point out that, in fact, it's actually Trump himself uh, who is tweeting himself as Nero. So here you see this Trump image. He kind of is playing up to the, the image uh, of Nero. So I, I think Trump as Nero um, is a good way of thinking about the gap between the language of mainstream critique, and the way in which Trump and his supporters uh, uh, very often exist in a kind of separate bubble in which, um, in which the sort of criticism just doesn't land. Now, now America then is divided. And as just about every other commentator on the planet has pointed out, healing this division is going to be the great challenge of the next presidency. How do you heal a, a divided country? And again, I think it's worthwhile thinking about the differences between 2016 and now. Now, in 2016, the general diagnosis was that the Trump victory was largely a victory about disparities of wealth, about those who'd been left behind in the sort of post-industrial revolution, especially in the sort of large Midwestern manufacturing states now gaps between rich and poor are actually something that we're historically primed to deal with right we know a lot about them we know what works and what doesn't work you know and we can tell a story about healing the the gaps between rich and poor you know that starts with the agrarian reforms of the gracchi goes forward to the peasants revolt Kett's rebellion the age of revolution the toll-puddle martyrs, the Enclosures Act, the birth of the modern Labour Party, the New Deal, right? So there's a huge amount of historical stuff, a huge reservoir of historical material that we can talk about that will help us think through how one might um, achieve positive outcomes uh, for the gaps between rich and poor. But what I think is different and what I think is worth considering in 2020 is the role of race. um, And in particular, the rise of the Black Lives Matters movement. Now, as a historian, I think there's a challenge here. And that is that I think we are historically profoundly under-equipped for thinking through about how we achieve healing in terms of systemic and institutional racism. That is to say that the history of racial injustice is very easy to write. The story of healing, however, is a very different matter. And this is not to say that there aren't historical resources that we can mobilize. But I think our thinking on reconciliation and healing in relation to racial issues is much more undeveloped than, as I've suggested, in relation to economic inequality. So I think this is good. this is the real challenge uh, for whoever wins, and I think it's a big one. And I think perhaps the, the first step is to admit how, how little we know. And so on that, I think I'm going to end Our third panellist
1: is Head of UQ's School of Political Science and International Studies, Professor Catherine Gelber. Catherine's expertise is in freedom of speech and speech regulation, with research projects into the operation of hate speech laws and the effects of counter-terrorism policies on freedom of speech.
4: So I'm going to talk tonight about the state of public discourse in the United States, which is a particularly important component, I think, Uh, of what's been happening since uh, President Trump was elected, but also in setting the scene for what might happen after the next US election. So an essential element of the Trump persona and his political stance is his attitude towards and his impact on public discourse. And open public discourse, of course, is vital. It's, It's the instantiation of democracy. It's how we do the work of democracy by people engaging in deliberation and debate That's how we form opinions, that's how public opinion can have impact on policy, that's how policies get changed, that's how we decide how we want to live. Um, Now you can't do everything of course with debate and with words. Um, Context matters in terms of what you can do with your words and what your words mean. So it's important to pay attention to the work the words are doing and to the context within which those words are being deployed because when the context changes the words can change. So writing in 1946, Victor Klemperer, who had survived the, uh, living in Germany during the late 30s and the 40s, wrote about how language can be changed, that the meaning of words can be appropriated, the value of words can be altered, so that they come to mean an entirely different thing from what they once did. And he reminded us that it's usual to characterise the spirit of a particular epoch through its language. So how can we characterise the Trump epoch? How can we characterise the current Uh, United States epoch. And particularly by that, I mean the period since the last presidential election. Well, President Trump is, of course, highly critical of many aspects of political discourse. Notably, he's described the media as the enemy of the people, but there has been a lot more than that. He rails, for example, against what he calls fake news, which essentially amounts to any information with which he disagrees from the size of the crowd at his inauguration to responses to early concerns about the coronavirus. He calls information a hoax when he disagrees with it. Uh, And he speaks as though he is the holder of truth. At a press briefing, for example, on the 19th of March this year, he said, it amazes me when I read the things that I read, because you see, I know the truth." He cites the truth as his defence when he explains, for example, why he hasn't spoken with President Putin about allegations that Russia paid bounties for the deaths of American soldiers in Afghanistan. And he's accused major media organisations of siding with foreign states when the evidence suggests that he, or at the very least his supporters, have sided with foreign states. He lies with abandon, both about less important issues like claiming journalists don't call him before they publish their stories even when his press secretary uh, contradicts him, and the vital ones like claiming that mail-in ballots facilitate fraud in the absence of any substantiating evidence, which of course is likely to play an important role in the upcoming election, or denying claims either of um, engaging in sexual harassment and sexual assault or that it meant anything. President Trump has recently bemoaned cancel culture, an ill-defined grab bag idea that contains complaints about everything from hate speech to statue removal to illiberal progressives. But the president himself practices this approach at an astonishing rate. For example, he's used antitrust powers against media organisations whose coverage he dislikes. He's threatened to revoke the licences of media organisations, again, whose coverage he dislikes. He urges his followers to cancel subscriptions to cable companies that own the news organisations he dislikes. He's urged the Postmaster General to do a number of things, including doubling or quadrupling the rates that charges Amazon. He's repeatedly accused a TV host he dislikes of murder. He fired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and his twin brother after Vindman testified to Congress about the Ukraine phone call. He and his family have repeatedly tried to block publication of books critical about him, And he encourages and condones acts of physical violence against protesters, journalists and those who disagree with him. More recently, he organised the gassing of, of peaceful protesters outside the White House. It's difficult, very difficult, I think, among the torrent of attacks on public discourse that we've been experiencing in the last few years to highlight a single example above all of something which is damaging to the core of democratic discourse. But if I was pushed, I think I would point to his drawing of an equivalence between anti-racist protesters and far white supremacists. He did that in Charlottesville, Virginia, in relation to the events in Charlottesville, Virginia in August, 2017. And he's done so often since that time. In 2017, he said, you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine on both sides. If you look, there were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E Lee. I'm sure in that group there were some bad ones. And again, as he left the White House to visit El Paso, Texas, following a racist and white supremacist shooting that left 22 people dead and 23 people injured, he reiterated that there are bad people on all sides. Now, why is this dangerous for public discourse? I think this is extremely dangerous because it erodes important distinctions that are essential to our capability to engage in debate, to discuss policy and to decide the way forward. Distinctions between right and wrong, between good and bad, between what benefits citizens in a democracy and what's harmful to citizens are just eroded by this kind of complete reappraisal or restructuring and reconstruction of what we mean when we use certain words like truth or hoax or fake. This potentially leaves political discourse in a vacuum where every view becomes of equal value and equal merit, regardless of whether it's evidence-based, regardless of whether it's based on research, regardless of who says it and what its meaning and force are. This removes, for example, the ability to feel abhorrence towards injustice because injustice just becomes an abhorrence towards injustice, just becomes another point of view that's equally as valid or invalid as anybody else's. It confuses our ability to identify and combat discrimination, exclusion, and marginalisation. It's toxic to inclusivity. And it renders us incapable of making well-informed, well-considered choices. And as individuals, it's vital that we participate in public deliberation and public discourse so that we can become aware of and make decisions about what we consider to be the right way to live a good life, for both for ourselves and others. And collectively, we do that through public discourse. That's what I meant when I said at the beginning that this is the instantiation of democracy. Without this, democracy doesn't work. It doesn't actually happen. And now more than ever, you might say, we need to be able to make well-informed and well-considered good choices. We need to listen to those who are most affected by the pressing issues of our time. And they're incredibly pressing, climate change, Black Lives Matter, for example, if we're to have any hope of addressing these issues adequately. Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum have a new book which speaks to this decline in public discourse, and they take aim at what they call new conspiracism. Like classic conspiracies, The new conspiracy theory aims to provide a very simple narrative to make sense of complex events. And I can understand why a lot of people want to make sense of very complex events. But classic conspiracy theories rely on engaging in in a meticulous collection of facts and then stringing them together to create a persuasive, even if it's wrong and untruthful, nevertheless a persuasive narrative. New conspiracism, they argue, does nothing of the sort. Facts don't matter. There's no need to trace a persuasive narrative based on selective use of evidence. Allegations and insinuations are enough. You spread them through repetition and you spread them through social media. And what this does is delegitimise knowledge and delegitimize, de- delegitimize expertise. What this does is undermine democracy. What's going to happen uh, to turn this around? This is a really big deal, I think, for the Democrats. If the Democrats are elected, if Biden is elected, he's going to have to try and combat this decline in public discourse. That's going to be hard. Obviously, he won't be doing it on his own. His party's going to have to be involved. The entire commentariat is going to have to be involved. It remains to be seen how effective that will be and also how long it will take. We've held on to a belief for a long time now that the United States democratic institutions are robust enough to withstand the actions of an incompetent or corrupt president. But what we don't yet know is how corrosive of democratic habits and informal institutions and norms and conventions of democratic behaviour this onslaught of attacks on the shape of public discourse has been. I suppose the result in November and its aftermath will tell us. Thank you.
1: Our fourth and final panellist is the founder and chairman of Campaigns and Communications Group, political strategist and commentator, Bruce Hawker. Bruce has over 35 years' experience working at the state and federal level in Australia, including advising Bob Carr, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and Prime Minister Julia Gillard.
5: All right, well, uh, I want to pick up, I think, from where uh, Sarah and Jane uh, and uh, Catherine and Alistair were because democracy really is in uh, in the balance in many ways in the United States at the moment in a way that we never would have really expected it to be. Um, but before I talk about that, I want to just discuss uh, a few things about how this campaign is likely to uh, to proceed. And to do that, I want to, first of all, just discuss the the likely states that are going to be in play in this election campaign. And uh, of course, we have about seven or eight, which everybody should really be focusing their attention on. And that includes Pennsylvania, which is a traditional rust bucket state, Wisconsin, which uh, is traditionally a democratic state, but went to uh, Trump in the last election and where potentially law and order is going to be a significant issue coming up. Florida, we saw that interesting uh, slide from Sarah on that issue about how much attention is being placed there. And, of course, in that state, the coronavirus uh, is playing out in a big way because of the number of older people who, uh, who retire in Florida and, and who have traditionally are often been Democratic voters. It's, a, uh, it's, it's very much a swing state. Arizona is in play because of issues around Hispanics and the wall, Dreamers and um, and a perception amongst those people in that state that Trump has used that in an exploitative sort of a way, but it was a state which in 2016 went to the uh, Republicans, so it's going to be another one that we're going to have to look at. North Carolina is very interesting because in many ways it's the state where you can look at the impact of Trump on the suburbs and places like Charlottesville. Uh, where you're going to see uh, significant numbers of college-educated ed- white women voting, we are likely to see a significant reaction against him. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute in terms of the overall campaign. Michigan, we've discussed briefly because of it's a rust bucket manufacturing state, traditionally went uh, Republican in 2016. And I'd throw in there Minnesota, because even though it's always been a, uh, a democratic state in the time that I can remember, it is tightening. And uh, this issue of law and order, the response to Black Lives Matter, and uh, and, and other areas of dispute, including uh, the trade war with China, make it a very complex and uh, an interesting state to be looking at. I visited the United States in 2018 to do the first stage of a documentary on uh, the Trump phenomenon. and. That was an incredible eye-opener for me because I was able to see for the first time up close by doing about 130 interviews with people in the street what the average person in the United States was taking from the Trump administration. And, uh, and the overwhelming impression I took away from it was that this is a divided nation that's deeply uncomfortable with that division and I was staggered by how many people, including a, uh, a, a, a potential nominee for the Democratic Party who I interviewed in, uh, in Iowa, uh, who said that the United States was in or entering into a kind of civil war. And uh, that was a um, you know, staggering for me to, to think about it in those sorts of terms, but a number of people talked in those sorts of terms. On the other hand, you would have people who would say, what we saw was an amazing ability of people to compartmentalise Trump and say, look, I hate his misogyny, I hate the way he tweets, I hate his attitude towards minorities, but, and there was always the but, which was the get-out clause for him, and generally it was... Uh, well, we've got full employment, uh, look what he's doing with, um, you know, the stock market, and uh, we, we, we elected a, a businessman, not a politician. Or, you know, this is what it looks like when you take on vested interests in Washington. It can be ugly. So there was always that sort of response. Now, of course, since then, the political map has changed in the sense that we now have 200,000 dead Americans as a result of coronavirus. And of course, unemployment has gone through the roof, and you know people are in a hard in, in a hard way, but we are still doing interviews in the United States at the moment, uh, albeit remotely using local crews and For those people who love Donald Trump and I think it was Sarah who said it 's about forty percent who are just locked into him come hell or high water, they will refer to the fact that you know he brought their country uh, high employment they don't talk about the fact that 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 he's um, are now presiding over record levels of unemployment and they will also make uh many excuses for him any number of excuses for him over coronavirus you know it's not his responsibility it should be something that's dealt with by states or by local administrations or it's really not such a bad thing and uh, you know and so forth so the political situation as we go into the last two months of this campaign is very fluid uh and, and we just have to bear in mind that 40% of that electorate are voting for uh, Trump, Come whatever happens. So the big issues, I think, that are going to come down the line of law and order, we're seeing that now. You know, and as somebody that grew up in Queensland in the 60s and 70s, I've got a very strong idea of how successful law and order campaigns can be. And I think that's going to play out in a big way. Violence riots, they they tend to be issues that uh, don't work well for progressives. But in this case, uh, when polling has been done, it showed that Biden is a much more of a calming influence than Trump in this area. The other thing I'd like to just mention briefly is, and we maybe can talk about this a little bit further, is the fact that Trump is really making it clear that he will challenge the outcome of this election if he doesn't get the result that he wants. And he's probably going to do that through a variety of means. He'll do it through uh, the engagement of uh, arguments about the postal voting being rorted and the length of time it's going to take for these postal votes to be counted. If we get a situation where on election night we don't have the the 270 votes in Biden's pocket for the Electoral College, and we start seeing these uh, people coming
3: uh,
5: and we start seeing a, a... the whole situation starting to unravel as we don't get a result in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin you have this real problem that that they have a state governor and the legislature on different sides of the aisle and when it comes to the congress making a decision about who actually won the vote you might have a situation where the governor says Biden won it and the legislature says oh those electoral college votes for my state actually should have gone to Trump That's when you've got real trouble. And that's when things could really get very interesting and very worrying.
1: So now that we've heard from all of our panelists, Professor Heather Zwicker has some questions for them.
0: Thank you. Thank you all very, very much. I know you've given us an awful lot to think about. It's been said that Trump might ultimately be more interested in fame than he is in power. And in some respects, even, even this panel demonstrates the success that he has in in leveraging his own notoriety. So let's let's pause on Trump for a sec and talk about Biden. Has Biden had any lucky breaks or Alistair, I wonder who's the
3: Nero to Biden? Thank you. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think you know you raise a really interesting question, Heather, because of course under Trump, fame and power have been treated as the same thing. Uh, and I think that's the real trick of the the, the Trump presidency. Um, Biden, on the other hand, who is the historical parallel? Well, who is Biden? I mean, that's the real problem, is in terms of running such a small target campaign, um, uh, and really by defining himself as against Trump, um, in a sense, he kind of has a Problem breaking through in terms of um, his his personality. I mean, I mean, if I if I had to give Biden some advice as to where he should be looking for his historical uh, uh, parallels, I mean, I think he you know America needs to wean itself off the Romans. Um, uh, it needs to stop thinking of itself as a republic and start thinking of itself as a democracy. Uh, and it should start by thinking, I think, about going back to the Greeks and that moment of kind of radical inclusion that was the the kind of found spark of democracy, the idea that, you know, no matter, you know, your your wealth or your birth or even your education, that you still had a, a capacity to govern and that ca- capacity to govern was intrinsic in you. So I would be suggesting that he needs to be looking to the kind of the the radical foundational moments of democracy um, uh, would be where, where I'd be sending him.
0: Bruce, I wonder if you want to get in on this. Did you Did you learn about, I mean, you wouldn't have learned about perceptions of Biden as a uh, as a candidate at the time that you began that work,
5: but amongst the uh, the, the Democratic voters, they, are, they seem to be locking in behind him. But there is a really strong view amongst Democrats and I think waiverers and people who have just taken a disliking to Trump, it's anyone but Trump. So uh, he has that going for him. The big challenge for Joe Biden, of course, is going to be that people don't see him as being doddery or too old for the job. And that's exactly how Trump is trying to present him now. That hasn't probably had too much impact on people's thinking, but it could. And, uh, and the crunch point I think for him will be the debates. If Biden gets through the debates okay, then I think uh, that'll be a, a moment of uh, you know, rejoicing in the Democratic campaign rooms. If he doesn't, then, uh, then that will be the point where Trump really ramps up the argument against him that he's just not up to the job.
0: So, uh, and this this question, Kath, is probably going to come to you, and to a certain extent, to Sarah. Um, of course, we don't experience the debates live; we experience them through the media. So, when we think about the kind of discourse that you were describing, Kath, or the kind of polling results that you. Um, that you um, mentioned, Sarah, makes it so hard to predict outcomes. What role do you think the media might be playing?
4: Well, I think that it's important now more than ever to differentiate between different types of media. So the traditional media is trying to do its traditional job of holding the government to account, um, trying to use evidence, trying to use journalistic integrity and standards. Uh, but on social media, social media is a very, very complex beast, but one of the things that's going on in social media, for example, is the uh, spread of rapid spread of misinformation, sometimes bot driven spread of misinformation um, that uh, that really distorts people's understanding of what the truth is and what the issues are in policy and so on. And another thing that's happening on social media that I think is uh, almost to the detriment of the critics of Trump, is that because there's this visceral dislike uh, for the way he has uh, operated as president and his family and so on, there's absolutely nothing that he or his family can do that doesn't get sort of personally attacked. And a good example of that is the uh, rejigging of the Rose Garden by Melania Trump recently, which was really critiqued on social media. And I saw some other um, contributions to that debate, which said, hang on, Melania didn't do this on her own. There was a 260 page report there were all kinds of horticulturists who were consulted there were historical historians who were consulted this was actually a very carefully thought through project uh, and yet on social media the critics of Trump said anything that anybody in the Trump family does needs to be criticized and I think actually that's to the detriment of the critics of Trump to overreact like that I think we need to focus or people who want to uh, critique what Trump does, need to focus on the real issues and the policy issues and the, the issues that are to do with governing and, and to leave that other stuff alone. And that, again, may because so much is done through social media, I think that's distorting people's understanding of what's important and what's important to retain as part of public discourse.
2: I think that there's no doubt that in the future, we're going to look back at this period as the dawn of a new age of the way we conduct politics. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not we can get ourselves out of it. But I think that the polarizing nature of social media in particular is absolutely crucial. It's reflected in the old media too. So if you're in the US and you turn on Fox News, when you turn on CNN, you could be living in two different countries. They often are reporting two completely different things about the same event. So there is the problem reflected all through the media. But I think That one of the things that's hard to grasp without having spent time in the U.S. is how polarized people are. And I think it is a collision between a a Polity that has always been quite polarized. It's a two-party system. It has had a whole lot of cleavages which run in a bifurcated way. So it has North versus South. It has Black versus White. It has Democrat versus Republican. It has rich versus poor. There are a lot of divisions socially anyway. But you overlay that on a system which doesn't really even come close to reflecting the popular vote that's easily manipulated, that is preventing people from engaging in democracy. And I think you, you end up with an extremely dangerous situation. I'm, I think that the polarizing effect, we feel it in other democracies as well. There's no doubt about that. And the level of discourse on Twitter just shows people like to shout at each other. But we don't have the same sorts of frankly problematic electoral design, that the the moment they're buying us time in other democracies. But we need to think carefully about how we're going to manage an increasingly divisive way of interacting with each other.
0: So another question that's come up in the the Q&A is whether, to what extent, religion is a factor in this election. It does feel like an absence in the comments that the four of you made. Bruce, could I turn to you first?
5: Uh, Well, one of the places we went to in 2018 was Indiana, the home state of uh, Pence and uh, he is critical to uh, to the re-election prospects for Donald Trump because even though uh, Trump shows absolutely no uh, religious sort of um, principles in the way in which he uh, he operates, he always makes sure that the religious right is being looked after uh, in any decisions that he's making and, and and he uses Pence to do that all the time. So uh, religion is uh, going to be a, a big player in the sense of, of that politicised religion that we see in the United States uh, and it's going to play out in the Midwest as it has in the past as a, um, as a vote for Trump regardless of all his personal predilections and statements and when I was talking before about the but... Uh, you know, some of the classic butts that uh, people were giving me were in Indiana, you know, uh, and they had no hesitation because they saw him uh, with pants as bringing religion back into politics and that's what they liked.
0: Interesting. Somebody else want to piece this? Maybe Sarah?
2: Um, I think this is a really interesting question because despite Trump's own non-relationship with religion, he is of course, very happy to play the religion card when it suits him. But more importantly, he's forged very strong relationships with evangelical groups, even though his own actions don't suggest someone who's necessarily a believer. And I think that's critical. In the 2016 election, one of the things we know about Trump is he pulled surprisingly well among women. And the reason for this success was because it appears as though Trump was going to have at least one, if not two, Supreme Court appointments. And the evangelical movement knew that he would point appoint anti-abortion judges and a lot of people um in the post-election washout in the last election a lot of people said i don't care what he says about women i don't care how he's acted even though i'm a woman those those seats on the supreme court are absolutely crucial for me and that that unlikely alliance between evangelicals and trump is driven largely by the politicized nature of the supreme court
0: So, Alastair, you were pretty optimistic when you called on us to think back to the Greeks, but is this just a crisis within America, or is this an actual crisis within democracy?
3: Yeah. Look, I, I think it's a larger crisis within democracy. And I think, um, you know, Sarah was talking before about polarised uh, old media. And we've had polarised old media before. Um, you, know, w- you know, in the UK, you know, the Guardian would run one line, the Telegraph would run another. So it's not like we haven't seen polarised before, or polarisation in, in political discourse before, but something's new. And I think it is um, the rise of social media, um, the increasing social isolation um, that people have um, and the way in which you know we're kind of now looking for new kinds of communities, um, and that those communities can be um, you know quite disparate and also quite radical. So they are so the rise of conspiracy theories, for example, far more than we've seen uh, seen elsewhere, is again a, a phenomenon that is comparatively recently. And, and democracy isn't used to um, dealing with people who um, genuinely are paranoid uh, about the. Operation of government, um, and and they're also unreachable by, by reason. Um, and 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 we're still running the challenge of how do you reach people um, when the normal language of reason um, uh, mean is is no longer applicable. What is the common language that we can uh, we can establish? And I think until we establish that, um, democracy is really uh, under threat.
0: It's almost as though you're suggesting emojis can't fill that gap.
3: <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs>
0: Kath, I wonder as a head of pulses whether you'd want to get in on this too.
4: Yes, I, I in my darker moments, <laughs> I, ha, I confess that in the last few years, I've wondered if democracy is up to the task. Um, I mean, famously, of course, Winston Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And we don't have an alternative at this point that can outdo it. But we really are seeing its weaknesses. And in particular, it's not just the human weakness that alistair was talking about but it's the susceptibility that our democracies have democracies have sleepwalked into to manipulation even algorithmically driven manipulation bot driven manipulation and this this is something that seriously concerns me. And I know that there's a, a global movement to try and get social media organisations to pay greater attention to the harms that can occur on social media. But at the moment, that's more about trolling and uh, people using hate speech online and so on. But really it's structurally a problem. It's structurally a problem that people are getting their information from sources that are completely unreliable and that increasingly are driven by algorithms that reinforce structures of oppression and that reinforce inequalities and that reinforce divisions. Uh, And it's a really, really dangerous mix. So I'm, in my moments of despair, I think I think democracy is in real trouble. I don't, of course, have the magic bullet as to how we would uh, fix that, but I do think we need to start naming it. I think think we need to start confronting it in very real and concrete
0: ways. And what about back here at home in Australia? What 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 are the implications of this election for us here on the other side of the planet? Or maybe even more provocatively, could what we're seeing in the U.S. play out in a similar way here in Australia? Bruce, you'd be a good person to start us off on that.
5: Well, in Australia, we have much stronger protections, uh, I think, in our electoral systems, for example. Um, we don't anymore have the sorts of gerrymanders that still operate in the United States. We, uh, we do have strong anti-corruption uh, laws here, which I think would if applied in the united states would have seen trump and many people around him you know before uh, commissions even if they were managed to get through that all um so I, i'm not particularly anxious uh, about the state of democracy in australia um i do think though that we obviously have to be aware of it at all times and just as social media has a significant impact on the way in which people think uh, and uh, and we have a, a polarised um, you know, media here in Australia as well, then obviously those are issues. But I don't see it as being uh, as big a deal as it is in the United States. I, You know, I, I, I never cease to be amazed at how how fragile American democratic institutions are, you know, voter suppression rather than trying to get more people out to vote. And they all have historical reasons and uh, for that, but I don't really see it as being a huge issue in Australia in the way it is in the United States.
2: Interesting, Sarah, what about you? Well, wearing my international relations hat, as well as my political science hat, what's interesting about this election is that it's not a foreign policy election. I don't think there's been a serious discussion about foreign policy. I think it's unlikely that there will be any discussion about foreign policy at all. And I think this is because Trump is actually fundamentally not interested in foreign policy, and you can see that in the inconsistency of his foreign policy actions. So he does what he thinks is right in any particular moment, rather than having a coherent program of what he would like to do. So it's very responsive. And I think the challenge of that for Australia is there's no doubt that the U.S.-China relationship, and if it stays increasingly complex, that will have an impact in Australia. But no one's talking about that in the American election. So this is not an election that's going to be decided on foreign policy issues. In fact, American elections rarely are. But it is an election which is going to have an impact on if Trump wins on carrying on unpredictable foreign policy.
3: Alistair? Look, I think the big difference between Australia and the U.S. is compulsory voting. Uh, And, you know, we should thank, you know, our lucky stars every day for compulsory voting, because what that means is you don't have to energize the base in the way that Trump does. And that creates a very different kind of theater of politics. And so that's my, my takeaway is, you know, just let's just thank for compulsory voting.
0: And maybe as a last comment,
4: Kath? Yes, thank you. I think that we've seen in Australian politics in the last few years in particular, some pretty concerted attempts to Americanize uh, some aspects of Australian politics, particularly around areas of social policy. The uh, playbook of the opponents of same-sex marriage, uh, the people putting, who are putting forward and supporting the Religious Freedoms Bill, uh, the debate about free speech. Um, there have been some really significant attempts to Americanize uh, Australian political debate in that sense. Uh, but but one. I think what's most interesting about that is that those attempts haven't been successful. They've been rhetorically very powerful, but what they haven't shifted is the the deep sentiment that the Australian public has that is in favour of a more collective and social understanding of what society is for and what democracy is for, that accepts and and expects that governments will take action to protect those who are hardest hit by events that are not of their own making, which we've very much seen in the context of covid and so I really I get, there are there are some important parallels, but I like Alastair and and others. I don't I don't hold as grave concerns for Australia as I do for the United
0: States right now. Well, this brings us to the end of our hour, and what an hour it's been! I want to thank all of our panelists very much for such thought-provoking presentations. I will leave it there. We will all imagine the thunderous applause that we no longer get on Zoom but look forward to having when we can reconvene the GLS in person.
1: We hope you enjoyed hearing from our panel of experts, Professor Heather Zwicker, Associate Professor Sarah Percy, Professor Alastair Blanchard, Professor Catherine Gelber and Bruce Hawker. For more from UQ experts, check out our range of webinars and podcasts on the UQ Alumni website or follow UQ Alumni on social media. To ensure you never miss an episode of the UQ Alumni podcast, please consider subscribing on your favourite podcasting platform. My name is Mary Brown and this podcast was produced by Lucy Blair from UQ's Alumni Relations and Engagement team.